Children are among the least free people in the world. Adults say this is a condition of children's being. They say children don't know yet how to be free, but the adults don't know how to be free either. The adults were once children too. Now they have turned against children. They do not remember being trapped in the bedrooms of childhood, the bunk beds or dormitories. Of all people, children are among the most abused, the most harassed, the most exploited. 
They are trapped without money in the power of money. They are not allowed to work, for if they work, their wages are low. Childish is a bad word. Childlike means naive wonder, as if children did not have knowledge of their own, as if children were not the people who are most urgently concerned with knowing things. How can children liberate themselves? We should be careful not to generalize too much. Just like adults, children carry history around as class, race, gender, ability, and nationality. They carry these histories twice or three times over because they carry the troubles of the adults in their lives as well as their own. When children fight to liberate themselves, they have to think about the things that make them different from each other, as well as the things that they have in common. Otherwise, they will only liberate some children instead of all of them. And then the children who are not liberated will have to ask again, how can we liberate ourselves? Freedom is not a single event or a one-time thing. Freedom is moving towards freedom, sometimes away from it, when it gets too lonely there. Many children think that they will have more freedom when they grow up. But adults are trapped too. And part of what traps them is the traps they set for children. And life is not always long enough to get over the unfreedoms of childhood. Maybe children will be able to say to each other, We don't know what a child is. That is why we are fighting. Maybe those who are not children will have to acknowledge that they don't also know what a child is. Freedom is not like an arrow moving forward. In some places and times, some children are freer than they are here and now. In some places and times, some children are less free. Liberation is not just a question for the future. It has to be here, in the material of what exists now. Otherwise, it is just science fiction. But I still want to know. How can children liberate themselves? Can adults help children to be free? Just like a woman can use a boyfriend to make other men leave her alone, a child can use the authority of their parents or carers to make other adults leave them alone. In many ways, the situation of women and children are connected. Women are made responsible for the well-being of children, and children are made responsible for the happiness of women. Is there a way to be responsible for someone without controlling them and without weighing them down with your idea of them? The freedom of children cannot be independence. Someone needs to be there to deliver language, to feed the baby, and to change the baby's clothes. Maybe all freedom is like this. It is not just about becoming more alone, but about being together with others. We are made of other people. When a child becomes an adult, the law says, Now you are no longer made of other people. Now you are made of yourself.
living and the law look at each other, but they don't understand each other. Adults do not always take care of children in a good way. The adults were not all taken care of in a good way as children. Sometimes an adult looks at a child and thinks, Why should you have what I didn't have? I was hurt as a child. Why shouldn't you be hurt? I didn't feel good as a child. Why should you feel good? Adults don't always think of children as full people. They often think of children as just mirrors of themselves. Children are taken for adult purposes. When children become adults, they do not know what they have become. They remember the intensities of childhood. They forget the intensities of childhood. They remember the intensities of childhood. There is no lock on the door I closed and you opened it. Or the door locks and you have the key. I close the door and you open it. When I spill the cup, it hurts you and I spill the cup even more. I don't know how to do what you say because I don't know what you're saying. And my body doesn't know how to do what I say because. When I lose the glove, it hurts you. And I lose the glove even more. I'm waiting for you on the steps while the sky goes pink then black. I am giving you cancer. You are so tired in the mornings. And I am so tired in the mornings. I can't make me up to you. You don't want to crash the car. We are in a room made of only our voices. I don't like it. I lie down in the dark, but you turn on the light. I lie down on the ground, and you lie down with me. I want to go home, I say. I don't know what I'm saying. Where is home, you say? I want to go there, too.
I am happy to inform you that you have been selected for an interview regarding Rupert's residency program, January 15th through to May 30th, 2016. The interview will take place via Skype this coming Wednesday, the 28th of October, 2015. Please note the date is not flexible. You can select a convenient time slot using the following link by placing your initials under your name. Please make sure to not include your full name as to preserve anonymity. HTTP colon double forward slash doodle dot com forward slash poll forward slash VU Q9 3F X2 AF CP SDNI. Figures of speech sit facing off in a space for enunciation, a craggy pixel soaked space for mouths and words. Mouths don't always match up with words, a problem that long plagued the working lives of ventriloquists. But for me, the puppet I cast voices upon is shaped in my immediate likenesses. I put words in our mouths and then watch myself champ and try to keep up. We say, It's you, my Gillette. My Gillette. They haven't, they killed, haven't you. killed you. You're here next You're to here me. Next Speak, to me. My, Speak darling. my darling. Our Rube Goldbergian contraptions dance and show great promise. I marvel at ourselves, choreographically and haptically inscribed within a transmissible moment. But the error is embedded. There will be feedback loops, a disconcerting echo chamber threatening concentration, the rude shock of self-mimicry. This is hard to ignore. In these conditions, it's hard to ignore ourself, your mouth, my words. Let's reset the vocal automator and try again, we say. I'll call, I'll call you, you this, this time. time. The transmission of presence is broken. The sound image structure was a spectre. There are lots of things that can talk. Right now you're getting it from the horse's mouth. But there are even more things we can talk to. You said that you are interested in surveillance. Can you tell us more about this interest and what you're thinking of making as your project here? I can tell you. But before all that, let me show you something. If I can take some lipstick, red will do, and apply it to the cleft between my thumb and forefinger, like that, and then two eyes on the second finger, like that, then all I need now is the ability to throw a second voice. See? Not this voice you hear, but another one. So now I can say exactly what I mean. Are you with me? Yes, we are with you. So now this other voice, it might be existing outside a body, existing beyond its host, or let's say, a voice unhinged from its authorial larynx free of its owner's saliva. It will talk about ways of capturing and transmitting itself, but also ways of listening, listening to us both. It will tell stories or sing songs, and afterwards you will ask questions about how we've been listening and how we're being heard. How does the technology change the ways we speak to each other and the ways we speak out? What possibilities remain for vocal dissent? 
you'll seek a deeper understanding of how selfhood might be performed under these conditions and how voice can cloak or conceal. But I'm not sure we're explaining myself properly here. Forget what's been said so far. In Vilnius, I intend to make a talking horse film. Okay, you say this as though it's a genre. A talking horse film. You mean like Mr. Ed? Exactly. Maybe I didn't go to college, but I'm not stupid. (laughs) Would you have a presentation of this film? Yes, something public. Something shared with others. But audible voices usually are public. If my voice has left our body, can you hear me? Okay, then. I would argue it's outside of me now. A kind of public anatomy. A film, of course, requires some time for editing. But I see earlier steps as potentially performative. The kind of performance that happens only if you're there and lucky to see it. Casting for horses will also require more than a laptop and some free time. We'll be out in the field with a camera and a jar of peanut butter. I hope others will want to be part of this. For now, let's call this performance Shooting Talking Horses at Rupert. Excellent. You nominated dates in March and April. I should tell you, I have other commitments now and will need to push back toward mid-year. How does a shorter jig late May sound? Let me write that down. May could work well for us. Have you completed programming during this time? Actually, we have exhibition storing at this time, continuing our current exhibition in Oslo. So we'll be busy with that also. But this is the summertime, when things are more quiet. But I hope there's some folk about. Maybe yourself. Yes. Yes, we will still be here. We need to mention, unfortunately, we can't offer you airfares. Will you be applying for additional funds? Yes. Do you think you will still come if you don't get the funding? I mean, would traveling here depend on funding success? This wasn't the entirety of our conversation. There was that dance of introductions and goodbyes, not awkward, but certainly rushed through with the energy of a speed date. In those moments, I considered jotting down the name of the silent second interviewer, the one I wasn't expecting. But there's no chance amongst the nods and smiles. Was there also a small wave, a transmissible movement to reinforce the visual link and evoke a collective effervescence? Someone waved at both ends. Maybe it was me.
Part 1. My graft is like an eyeshadow palette with colours swatched from an opal October birthstone. Blue-grey beige where grafted skin patches over tissue lifted from a donor site with an intact blood supply. Glints and flecks of peach and lilac to cover complex wounds in limb salvage surgery. The malleability of muscle allows it to effectively obliterate dead space while the dense capillary network facilitates antibiotic deposition. And finally, the graft is encased in a baby pink scar. Accessorise the minced meat flesh with Hello Kitty band-aids and wash clean with Primrose antiseptic hand wash to help the sick girl prepare for hostile wound environments. These are images that support claiming disability as accessory, claiming illness as sick girls that... Am I romanticising illness or accessorising it to make it look cute and reclaim sick? Sick girls online are questioning the desirability of a sick body in a curated palette of soft pastel images. In her essay on being ill, Virginia Woolf writes about the denied aesthetic, poetic appeal of illness. It is an essay which is itself feverish in that it is directed by somatic sensations. Quote, novels one would have thought would have been devoted to influenza, epic poems to typhoid, odes to pneumonia, lyrics to toothache, unquote. She wrote it like the background reading to Audrey Wallen and Anne Boyer. Reading in bed is a form of deviancy, but Virginia Woolf seems to deliberately allow this. Quote, we rifle the poets of their flowers, we break off a line or two and let them open up in the depths of the mind. In illness, with the police off duty, we creep beneath some obscure poem by Malami or Dunn, some phrase in Latin or Greek, and the words give out their scent and distill their flavour. And then, if at last we grasp the meaning, it is richer for having come to us centrally first, by way of the palate and nostrils, like some queer odour. A light pink sick fog leaves everything washed out. Stale afternoon light filtering through the hospital curtain and onto the lino floor of the ward. Limp arms and bruised legs are draped across hospital blankets. The girls in the images embodying a kind of dead weight that aesthetically transcends the pastel sick palette of the curtains. The hospital linen is blue, faint like your veins showing through when you hold your wrist up to the light. The nurses will give you a baby pink hospital bracelet. Visually coded online, it becomes a signifier of disability as accessory. A sick bed is a grave, which is why my work is a practice of digital underscore burial, signed off with, sent to you from my sick bed. Click here to join. How to make soft private work and still assert it as art, disabled labour, non-work. To have a practice dedicated to the work of being well, and this comes before any other practice, because fragile health makes fragile work. Objectivity has been disabled when work is given form through sick fog. Quote Virginia Woolf, All day, all night, the body intervenes blunts or sharpens, colours or discolours, turns to wax in the warmth of June, hardens to tallow in the murk of February. Unquote. Part 2. 
On August 27th, 2011, Talia Castellano uploaded her first makeup tutorial to YouTube. Okay, so you need hot pink lipstick or like bright firecracker red lipstick. Her channel, Talia Joy 18, documented a terminally ill teen girl who slipped in and out of different forms of subjectivity as she performed a death mask online through beauty and makeup video blogs that she posted to her millions of followers. What kind of cancer do you have? Neuroblastoma. Ready? Here we go. N-E-U-R-B-L-A-S-T-O-M-A. Oh! Holy cow, I did it! Yay! I did it. I spelled neuroblastoma. Yeah, but it's called neuroblastoma. It's a real childhood cancer. You this is the work of taking up a subversive position to re-embody online spaces that have often ignored or denied women's and girls' bodies and their own account of them. Talia's makeup tutorials have a distinctly teen girl, anti-patriarchal mode of blending influences and associations that filter through her videos so that a makeup tutorial becomes a subjective account of Talia's experience of terminal neuroblastoma and pre-leukemia. That's why I really got into makeup and beauty because it just puts on, like, it puts on a wig and it makes me feel beautiful. So that's why I know a lot of people say, you wear too much makeup. I can do whatever I want. Thanks. But makeup makes me feel like I just have a wig on. And then I'm beautiful, and now I'm flawless, and I can work this bald head. During her palliative care, she uploads a video telling her viewers that she's not planning to leave the hospital, but she is planning another video. This is my hospital room. Talia seems aware of her uncertain subjectivity, that as a young girl, she's expected to be a non-subject. Interrupting herself in the middle of the video, she comments. And it's a pretty tough chemo. It's a very high dose chemo from my understanding. This is from my understanding. This is not like real knowledge up in the brain like I like to think it is. Most of the time it is. But if I'm wrong, uh, that's just because I'm, I, yeah. Donna Haraway proposed in her cyborg manifesto that in the fraying of identities and in the reflexive strategies for constructing them, the possibility opens up for wearing something other than a shroud for the day after the apocalypse. Rather than a shroud, Talia wears a death mask of cosmetics, false eyelashes and acrylic nails. In a video from 2011, two years before her death, titled Tutorial Glamorous Zombie, Talia literally painted a death mask with zombie-style makeup. Hey everyone! So today I have um this kind of like glamorous zombie kind of look. And you can make this messy because remember, you're a zombie, not a contoured Barbie. I write about the phrase, you look well, as an insult because this is work. Survival is also work and maybe dying is too. Talia died at the Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children in Fern Park, Florida on July 16th, 2013, about a month before her 14th birthday, after spending the last three months of her life in palliative care. An announcement was made soon after the time of her death, at 11.22am, 
on the Angels Vitalia Facebook page. Coping with cancer. Bye, guys. Part 3. Email reply to Catherine Bodden on 21st of April 2015 at 10.38pm. Casar at gmail.com wrote, How much money did it cost to save my life? Catherine responds, It's like the real sick girls of online, intro quotes. I may be dead, but I'm still pretty. The bags under my eyes are designer. Cancer might be the best way to die, but it doesn't have to be. The girl who cried pain, invisibly disabled like, surprise, bitch. The surgery was a success, and the patient is dead. Subscribe for the cure. Yeah, that's my new, that's my new slogan. Oh, I just thought of that last night. Subscribe for the cure. Ha. Or was it? It was something like that. That would have been Talia's catchphrase if she was on our make-believe show, The Real Sick Girls of Online. The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills are always moving forward. Yolanda Hadid's slogan or catchphrase alludes to the accusations she'll face throughout season six. Fake friends believe in rumors. Real friends believe in you. If I got to edit The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and choose Yolanda's catchphrase, I'd make it. Looking good and feeling like death is a difficult combination for people to understand. Yolanda Hadid is both a real housewife and a real sick girl. She could almost be a character of Dodie Bellamy's essay, When the Sick Rule the World, with a vague yet lengthy list of symptoms that tick all the boxes that add up to chronic illness. Reading through the list of symptoms in Dodie Bellamy's essay, When the Sick Rule the World, I begin ticking yes in my head to everything I have read or can imagine Yolanda would tick yes to, based on the 30 episodes of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills I've watched from bed this week. Quote, Have you ever had to lower the regular dose of prescription or over-the-counter medication or herbal supplements because you were too sensitive? Do you have a sudden onset of symptoms, headaches, skin rashes, nausea, shortness of breath, etc.? What symptoms? Describe your residence when your illness began. Have you ever been exposed to chemicals or toxic metals? When? How long? Name them. Have you ever lived on or adjacent to an agricultural area? What kind of area was it? When were your air ducts last cleaned and when were your air filters last changed? Do you wear dry cleaned clothing? If yes, how frequently? Are there animals in your home? Do you have air purifiers or water filters in your home? Do you heat food in a microwave? Do you have candles in your home? Do you regularly get hair colouring, permanence or visit a beauty salon? Have you ever had acrylic fingernails or been to a beauty shop where acrylic nails are done? If so, when? Have you ever used scented soaps, detergents, potpourri, perfumes, etc.? Have you ever lived with animals that received treatment for fleas or ticks? If so, when? Have you ever lived on or near a golf course? Have you ever had silver fillings put in your teeth? If so, when? Have you ever had any implants, stainless steel, silicon, etc. put into your body? If so, when? What kind of implants? Unquote. Yolanda is the supermodel in a performative sick role, modelling chronic Lyme disease while getting a stem cell transplant like, touch me, I'm sick. With her immense wealth, Yolanda pays for expensive treatments overseas, travelling by private jet to Mexico, South Korea, Singapore, a holistic approach, she calls it. Aurelia Guo wrote, 
what sort of bodies are accommodated by what sort of structures. I ask all of my sick friends how they would buy their way out of pain if they were as rich as Yolanda. I can't decide if the way she is capitalising on her illness by weaving it into her major plotline on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is kind of feminist, like getting paid to be sick, or if it's just that, capitalising off illness. Eleven countries, five states, 104 doctors later, Yolanda has had silicon breast implants removed to boost her immune system after having silicon free-floating around her chest cavity. She has mercury fillings removed from her teeth to avoid heavy metal poisoning and no more hair extensions. Ultraviolet blood irradiation. Essentially, this involves putting in an IV, then blood is drawn through a UV machine, then back to your body. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy. She also vows not to get highlights, Botox or wear nail polish. Cryotherapy, neurofeedback, stem cell therapy, detox. Dodie Bellamy writes that there is no such thing as a hypochondriac. There are only doctors who cannot figure out what is wrong with you. Unquote. The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is becoming like a reality TV version of When the Sick Rule the World. This is the first time I've heard the word fibromyalgia on television. Tune in each week for an episode of Chronic Illness Drama to hear you learn to say, People don't like sick people. Being in a sick bed is being invisible, unless your sick bed is broadcast on reality television. Then there's murky lines between illness as public or private or political. The private is televised as the M word, in which the housewives accuse or suggest that Yolanda has Munchausen syndrome, a disorder in which those afflicted fake physical illness for sympathy and attention. There goes our f***ing storyline. One of the housewives, Erica, defends Yolanda, saying... I want to ask her, do you think she's a liar? Is she going to call Yolanda a liar? This diagnosis of Munchausen syndrome is handed to Yolanda from the other housewives based on evidence garnered from her Instagram posts that alternate between happy selfie, sick selfie, happy selfie, sick selfie. Okay, so I'm just going to read you something. Go ahead. True Munchausen syndrome fits within the subclass of fictitious disorder and pre predominantly physical signs and symptoms, but they also have a history of recurrent hospitalization, traveling, and dramatic, extremely improbable tales of their past experiences. I just seen the picture and I I was enraged by it. It, it didn't get me. That's a strong word. It's like Yolanda's ill and you can't go anywhere and you can't do anything, but you choose to go and spend time with. Kim and Brandy. I don't get it. You can get away with anything when you're sick. <laughs> this doesn't make sense to the housewives. How one day Yolanda can post a photo in the sheets of her sick bed, needle in her arm for an intravenous vitamin infusion while she's on another chemical detox because anything artificial will give the sick a headache. And the next day... A happy selfie. Meanwhile, try not to think of Talia in her sickbed painting her nails with nitrocellulose. I post images on Instagram documenting my bruise progression, manhandled by orthopedic surgeons who boast about breaking their surgical instruments on my bones. 
It's a boys' club when 90% of orthopedic surgeons are men. Yolanda Foster will reign when the sick rule the world, travelling in packs on porcelain-lined, fragrance-free buses. Even if her illness must be diagnosed as labelle indifference, the words won't reach her in the organic orchard of her $27 million Malibu mansion. Picking lemons for the master cleanse 15-day lemonade detox, Yolanda is thinking of her childhood in the Dutch countryside, lemon yellow tulips. Yolanda is resigned to the gossip, writing on her blog, I have chosen to no longer engage in the Munchausen story, but rather preserve my energy and use it where necessary in my healing process. It is important for me to stay on my path of gratitude. I choose to follow the knowledge and clarity of knowing who I am and what I stand for rather than participating in insincere gossip about my disease. Unquote. Another real housewife of Beverly Hills, Catherine, gets the same type of hearing aid that I have. Camille had cancer too and she holds a diamond jewellery fundraising event. Sound clip from Kyle, sometimes the only way to get people around here to donate is to shop. Show up to your funeral like diamond emoji, $40,000 charity ring. In the children's hospital, we were given free Wi-Fi, but flowers were banned because they could hold germs that we were too immunosuppressed to fight off, leading to life-threatening infections. We were too sick for gift shop flowers already romanticised and aestheticised for us. In an imaginary hospital room, there are clean sheets on the bed and flowers on the bedside table. Dodie writes that the sick are too sensitive for flowers. Quote, When the sick rule the world, roses, gardenias, freesias and other fragrant flowers will no longer be grown. When the sick rule the world, perfume will be outlawed. Dealers will stand in alleyways selling contraband Estee Lauder and Chanel No. 5. They will carry tiny capsules of perfume in their mouths, tucked along their gums, and when they open their mouths, they'll look like vampires with their extra row of liquid gold teeth, unquote. The immunocompromised need fake flowers with no germs. Because the young girl doesn't age, she decomposes. She's already dead. But you can't run over dead bodies to get a great show. Now there is coffin shopping online to elevator music. An endless playtime girl coffin on the screen. Baby pink. Teddy bears holding love hearts and you can click here for tick. Yes, I like this one. Find your local life art supplier at coffinworld.com.au.
are haunted by the suspicion that the end has already come, by the suspicion that the gleaming automated utopias of the future are, in fact, the futures of our own now historical past, and that at some point the future disappeared. Of course, we never stopped moving forward in time. Rather, what we've lost is the perception of the future that modernity invented, that is, the mythological temporalization that projects future time in terms of progress. This kind of future is an artifact, not given but actively produced, as indeed is its disappearance, more precisely, the disappearance of the future in the social imagination can be attributed to late capitalism and the corresponding widespread opinion that there are no possible alternatives to capitalism. The apocalyptic revelation here at the prophesied end of history is that the apocalypse, as Stephen Chivero has said, is happening right now, continually and inconclusively, even as we speak. Only nobody noticed. The increasing cybernetization of labor and the emphasis on flexibility and superficial change under late capitalism give rise to a present that's overwhelmingly static, an ever-present present with no past and no future. So what? We're all haunted by a future that will never, can never take place. Network technologies and information as labor exchange matter for speed. That something does not take place is something to which we bear witness every day. The rapid evolution of the digital has fundamentally altered the landscape of the contemporary moment, to the point where it can be said that assuming a certain degree of access, the internet is the background to everyday life. Given the seemingly infinite incorporation of new digital technologies into our lives, it should be no surprise to find that what we do with art, and indeed the very concept of art, are likewise radically altered, or at least made questionable by the transformative powers of digital technology. Recording both dematerializes and inscribes a certain iterability to what was originally a moment in time. Take, for example, the photograph. The photograph itself is reproducible, scattered across its various iterations, and distributed throughout its means of reproduction. As Peter Osborne writes, this problematizes the whole question of where the photograph is, which turns out to be as difficult to answer under the conditions of chemical-based analog images as it is under those of digitalization. Insofar as the question can be meaningfully addressed, the photograph is distributed across the sites of its process, which it permeates as an image. Derealized, spectral, albeit in a peculiar ontological state of dependency upon the processes that it transcends in each of its different technological forms. Hence, its peculiar combination of generality and specificity. The photograph is ghostly. It's everywhere and nowhere, and an immobilized moment in time that moves through time. Mark Fisher remarks, the uncanny thought, often repressed or forgotten, is that the recordings and the photographs will survive us. 
that as we contemplate them, we're put in the position of a ghost. Osborne likewise notes the existential charge of the photograph and its relationship not only to remembrance, but more fundamentally to death. However, analog forms of recording are subject to deterioration and decay. Unlike digital formats, analog degrades through overuse. Each listener kills the sound she loves, in the same way that photographs yellow and peel. Digital technologies, by contrast, seem to produce infinitely reproducible recordings with an increasingly uncanny precision without being subject to similar erosion by time. However, this precision simultaneously amplifies these spectral effects of recording while naturalizing them. The high-resolution image or high-fidelity sound recording seems to capture more of its subject while concealing the traces that would reveal it to be only a reproduction. What differs between the lossiness of analog recording media and the lossiness of the digital is the manner in which they come about. In the case of analog media and formats, this lossiness occurs through recording, reproduction, and continual use. For digital media, lossiness is a function of speed. The increasing ubiquity of network devices gives rise, that is, to a contemporary moment that can be defined by accessibility, participation, and distribution. Through networked computing technologies, rare media become accessible, as do tools of production and mediation. And with these come the capacity to sample and resample share, reformat, and edit images. The degeneration of an image is a function of its distribution, transforming high-resolution imagery into what uh, Hito Stero calls the poor image. A copy in motion, as it accelerates, it deteriorates. As images are uploaded, downloaded, edited, resized, and circulated, data loss occurs. The so-called underlying information that produces the image gets rearranged, sometimes abbreviated for smaller file size, thus faster circulation, sometimes broken or even destroyed. She writes of the fetishization of resolution. In a class society of images, cinema takes on the role of a flagship store. Obviously, a high resolution looks more brilliant and impressive, more mimetic and magic, more scary and seductive than a poor one. It is more rich, so to speak. It is in this sense that the poor image is poor in losing data, sharpness, and resolution. It works its way toward the bottom of the class society of images. However, Sterl writes that apart from resolution and exchange value, one might imagine another form of value defined by velocity intensity, and spread. The poor image is one that's been transferred, reformatted, and remixed, and in the process, lost resolution, precision, and mass. Like the crackle and white noise of early music recording, it at once reveals its technical mediation and its ghostly, dematerialized, and distributed nature. The so-called poor image, then, can be commandeered as something that explicates this technological uncanny as well as our disappeared future and dematerialized present. 
The near universal accessibility of images, in particular those that would otherwise be rare or invisible, copyright protected or privately collected, for example, is like sampling in music a spectral resurrection. It is spectral in that it is dematerialized and virtual, neither soul nor body, and both one and the other, in its untimeliness and in its deterioration. But in our peculiar situation, in which we've exercised the past, have no future, and wherein the present is never fully present, how is it possible to speak of contemporary art? Osborne makes the claim that the word contemporary in the critical artistic discourse does not simply gesture toward the abundance of creative work made in the present moment. Rather, he argues that the word contemporary is deployed in a selective manner, that some contemporary works are contemporary while others are not. Osborne contends that to claim something is contemporary is to make a claim for its significance in participating in the actuality of the present, and thus for a critical discourse to delineate work as contemporary, it must come to terms with that present. To talk about contemporary art practice or discourse thus always implies a philosophy of time, and the conditions for engaging in such practice and discourse include the necessity to presume or to challenge the contemporaneity of the present, if not also the temporality of time. If we're confronted with a dematerialized temporal present and a disappeared future, what are the conditions for contemporary artistic practice to effectively engage with and participate in the actual present, or to open toward the future? Osborne's broader and more speculative proposition is that contemporary art is post-conceptual art. Osborne's use of the word post-conceptual is not to suggest the concerns of the historical conceptual project hold no charge for artists working today. However, contemporary artwork that calls itself conceptual does not necessarily do so in order to align itself with all of the aims of the historical project. Rather, as Seth Price claims, it does not stand for anything certain. Instead, privileging, framing, and contexting, and constantly renegotiating its relationship to the audience. Osborne, however, delineates the post-conceptual from the conceptual as a fundamental historical shift that provides the structure for the production and critical discourse of contemporary art. Bound up with this argument is a recognition of the relationship between post-conceptual art and what Osborne calls Transcategoriality. He defines this as the crossing of critical medium determined categories for the production and discourses of art, and holds that it's not only emblematic of, but is fundamental to the post conceptual. Central to this notion is the destruction of medium specificity and a sustained disruption to the ontology of categories coded by medium. In this way, transcategoriality bears some connection to Felix Guattari's announcement of the pending arrival of a post-media era. Observing the convergence of television and information and increasing capacity of the digital in 1990, 
Guattari identifies through his formulation of post-media era, a shift from mass media power to collective individual reappropriation, and the interactive use of machines of information, communication, intelligence, art, and culture. We are effectively living in Guattari's post-media era, with the increasing ubiquity of network devices and the lateral conjoining of previously separated media and practices. The ability of digital media to be reproduced across formats, devices, and geographic locations appears to lend credibility to the problematic binary between information and materiality. This, in turn, reinforces the subsequent binaries between the actual and the virtual, between presence and absence. It also fosters notions of equivalency between viewing modes, formats, and physical media, that is, that a digital work is reproduced equally regardless of its material substrate. Such ideas speak to Guattari's notion of post-media in the junction of television, telematics, and informatics. That is, the digitization and subsequent convergence of previously separated modes of representation. However, by thinking through the notion of post-media in terms of spectrality, of the ghostly simultaneous presence and non-presence of the ghost, it is possible to open up a space in which to disrupt the ontology of art and technology and to problematize the apparent binary between information and materiality. Hence, actual, virtual, and presence, absence, rather than reinforcing it. An artistic practice, critically invested in the digital, can engage with the discourses of technology and representation, and can position itself beyond traditional categories of medium within the frameworks of both Guattari's post-media and Osborne's post-conceptual transcategoriality. Osborne identifies a fundamental historical shift in art's mode of being, with the ontological structure of the post-conceptual finding its representation in the relationship between an infinity of possible actualizations of a work's conceptual dimension and its realization in multiple instantiations. In contrast, the historical conceptual project has been canonized as the destruction of medium specificity in favor of art's ideational ontological purity. That is to say that the post-conceptual fundamentality embodies self-difference, and that a work's conceptual dimension may be distributed across multiple actual realizations. It is possible to map onto this Guattari's notion of post-media by suggesting that artistic works might be realized across media and formats in both the real and the virtual, and in subsequent reiterations of works in various modes of representation. Of course, there is a sense in which all aspects of life, and not only art, have been transformed by the insurgence of new digital technologies. Nevertheless, the effects of digital technologies on art perhaps unlock a possibility that has lain dormant within much of what is referred to as modernism. Duchamp's Fountain, arguably the most famous work of modernism, is perhaps no work at all having never been exhibited insofar as it can be said to exist now. 
It is only through the reproductions and representations of a fundamentally hidden origin. Given the dispersed nature of the work through the various images and reproductions that have since circulated, Fountain is, in a sense, an artwork that speaks directly to the juncture of materiality and immateriality that appears to be our precise problematic. If this is the case, the question that must follow is, how is any of this new? That is to say that if after Duchamp, all art is already the locus of a point irreducible to either materiality or immateriality distributed throughout the media of its reproductions, how does the digital age offer the thinking of art with any novel? Seth Price writes, Duchamp was not only here first, but staked out the problematic virtually single-handedly. If this is the case, if Fountain can be seen to gesture toward the spectral future of art, why was this future continually deferred until now? The point that must be raised here is that while Fountain can be understood in this spectral sense within the contemporary moment, that is, in retrospect, the historical narrative of modernism privileged the notion of the future incompatibility with spectrality. It is possible that while the specter has always been at work, the logic of spectrality only came to be revealed in the moment that its effects were becoming amplified through these new media and in the wake of the disappearance of the future in the social imagination. That is to say that while ontology this logic of specter serves to problematize the singularity of the contemporary moment, and thus the singularity of the moment in which it could emerge, it nevertheless had to be revealed in the contemporary moment in order to be backwards compatible, so to speak, with the past. Perhaps the indeterminate and spectral space that digital practices can be said to inhabit provides a way of opening toward the future, and indeed the past of contemporary creative production. Thank you.